If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 5. We are continuing in this series in Amos. And, uh, you know, Amos has preached several sermons at this point to the people of Israel, and they really didn't like any of them. Uh, these sermons were not well received. He wasn't getting very many amens or retweets uh, on his message. And they're not going to like this one either. Remember in Amos chapter 4, last Sunday, Amos challenged them. God spoke through Amos to the people and said, prepare to meet your God. And somebody told me afterward that, that when I said that in the sermon that they just got chill bumps. They thought that's just a horrifying thought to think about. And now Amos is about to describe to them what that meeting is going to be like. What is it going to be like when they meet God? And so he takes this next sermon and he basically sings a funeral dirge. It's a funeral song. It's a song of lament. So obviously this meeting with God isn't going to go very well. Not if, it, not if it's going to end up in a funeral. Now, of course, this perplexed Amos's audience, right? Because as far as they're concerned, things are going great as a country. I mean, they're in the prime of life. They've got peace with their enemies. There's prosperity among many of their citizens. There's religious fervor that Israel hadn't seen in decades. But it was an illusion, like nice clothes and makeup on a dying nation, masking the decay that was happening within their hearts. The vital signs of the people of Israel was growing weaker every day. And just to illustrate what this lament is like, let's look at verses 1 through 3 and then verse 16 and 17, how he bookends this sermon. He says, Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. And then verses 16 and 17, he ends this message saying, Therefore this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, There will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to well, there will, be wait, there will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This funeral song isn't a very cheery one. Virgin Israel will fall, never to rise again. There will be like a young daughter removed from the protection of her father's household. And soon the Assyrian Empire is going to come and effectively remove the northern kingdom Israel. They're going to wipe them off the map. They're going to take them out of history. They're going to take the people of Israel and deport them to other nations. They will be deserted. And there will be no one able to lift them up. Israel was proud of her military might. But Amos says their army will be, dec will be decimated. A city that marches out a thousand will only have a hundred left. A city that marches out a hundred troops will only have ten left. This is what happens when God is no longer the Lord of a nation. This is what happens when kings do put their trust in chariots and horses and armies rather than trusting in the Lord. Amos says they will no longer have the Lord's protection in battle. In verse 23, uh, we'll look at that next Sunday, but in verse 23, God says that their songs of worship will be silenced. 
Think about all these beautiful songs, these fun, awesome songs that we have sung and that we worship to, powerful, stirring songs. God says of Israel, yeah, all those great songs you sing, I'm not going to listen to them. I don't care what you have to say in worship. In verses 16 and 17, God warns that languish and lament would be all that they have left. That's all they're going to have left is languish and lament. Wailing in the city streets, anguished cries in the public squares, he says are going to be echoed out in the farms and the vineyards. In other words, the city folk and the country folk alike are going to be weeping and wailing. The vineyards that were supplying all that wine for those cows of Bashan that we talked about last week, you know, the women, the wealthy women saying to their husbands, get me more to drink. All of that wine produced by those vineyards, all of that source of revelry and pleasure are now going to only produce weeping and sorrow. Amos sings a funeral song for a dying nation. What about our nation? What about our church? I believe firmly that as the church of Jesus Christ goes, so goes the country that it's in. And we've seen, you look at what has happened to other countries around the world that were Christian nations that are no longer. We see what happens when Christians stop being salt and light, when we lose our distinctiveness and no longer have the moral authority to speak up for the downtrodden, when we refuse to call sin what it is, when we stop being the conscience of a nation, we lose our saltiness. And we're good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled on. When churches become so like the culture around them, they make themselves irrelevant. Is it any wonder people no longer care what we have to say? We're just white noise. When churches and Christians stop shining the light of truth into a dark world, is it any wonder the darkness pushes back? Jesus told us people love the darkness and hate the light because their deeds are evil. And that's why Paul charges us to be like stars shining out in the universe as we hold out the word of life. When the church stops being salt and shining light, the nation is destined for failure. Because we're no longer acting as a preservative. We're no longer in the culture halting the further decay of sin. We're no longer speaking God's truth and shining the light of the better way, the way of Christ. We're no longer multiplying and making disciples. And when that happens, people become more and more ignorant of and intolerant of God's Word. And they descend into newer and more creative and greater realms of sin and perversion. And Romans chapter 1 tells us at that point, God just gives the people over to their depravity. We don't have time for it this morning, but I invite you to read Romans chapter 1 and tell me that's not an apt description of where our culture is today. Theologian Carl F.H. Henry warned us in 1969 that the barbarians are coming. He was one of Billy Graham's closest friends and was the founding editor of Christianity Today. And nearly 40 years ago, he was sounding the alarm that without a wave of multiplying disciple-making in this country, barbarians would take over our land. And he wasn't talking about foreign invaders. 
He said, no, it's our own unrepentant children and grandchildren. How true is that prophetic warning today? We're seeing that happen in cities across our country right now. But is there any hope? Can such a dying nation be resuscitated? Can such weak and insipid churches be revived? Yes, they can. I don't know how many of you have ever taken a CPR course. How many of you have ever taken a CPR course? Raise your hand. All right. So as you know, CPR, um, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, there are three simple steps they try to teach you. And I had to re-up last year. And so last year they said, okay, really three things you have to remember. And it's not, the acronym isn't CPR. The acronym is actually CAB. And it's compressions, okay? So you're doing compressions on their chest, okay? It's airway. You want to open up the airway, make sure there's no obstruction, and then breast, okay? So it's compression, airway, breast, okay? It's three things, simple, easy to remember. And each one of those are vitally important. Well, Amos, in today's sermon, gives us three ways that churches can kind of give themselves or give their culture CPR. Ways that we can be alive and thrive and be relevant and impactful again. Three ways that a dying nation can be resuscitated. And I do believe, as our New Testament reading says, that judgment begins with the family of God. This begins with us, the church. America has no hope apart from the church of Jesus Christ proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of Christ. So how can we return to God and be revived? The first thing Amos says is we have to hear God's Word. We've read that already in Amos 5, verse 1. Hear this Word, O house of Israel. And he says again in verse 3, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. He says it again in verse 4. We must hear God's Word. In Amos chapter 3 and 4, he begins those sermons the exact same way. Hear the Word of God. That is always the first step to revival. Always the first step. Think of it, think of it as like checking those airways. Making sure there's no obstruction for someone to breathe. We need to clean out our ears and our hearts so we can allow the Word of God to get in us and do its reviving work. Psalm 85, 6 through 8, in our Old Testament reading, said, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. That's the key. The key to revival is we have to listen to what God says. And the sad reality is that people today, even people in churches, are largely turning blind eyes and deaf ears to God. We've taken God's Word and we've put it up in the dashboard of our car and left it there all week after church. We've sat it on a shelf. It sits maybe on our bedside table unopened, collecting dust. For the past 10 years, the American Bible Society has conducted a study. They call it the State of the Bible Report. And it looks at Americans' engagement with God's Word. And it's a very sobering report. Matt uh, wrote a great article for our Sunday school leaders on this report this past week. And if you go to our website, to the help section, you can read it. It's a fantastic article. This year's report looks at the impact specifically that COVID has had on Americans' engagement with the Bible. With, with an already alarmingly low level of engagement, what kind of impact do you think this pandemic has had? Good or bad? 
Let me read to you how Matt summarized the findings. He said, Bible engagement dropped during the lockdown at rates unprecedented in the 10-year in the history of this survey. Between 2011 and 2019, roughly 14% of Americans said they read their Bible daily. 14% of Americans were reading their Bible daily. 14% of Americans were reading their Bible daily. In June of 2020, that number was 8.5%. The lowest in the history of the survey. ABS considers Bible engaged to mean that a person lets the Bible impact their choices and relationships. In January of 2020, 28% of Americans considered themselves Bible engaged. Okay, so that's twice as many as were reading it, but they said they were engaged with it. They were trying to live their lives by biblical principles. In June of 2020, that number dropped by nearly 6% to 22.6. Another interesting finding was that Americans who have been personally impacted by the coronavirus, okay, maybe they or a family member was sick or, or even died from it, they were more likely to read the Bible. So it was the opposite effect. Individuals were most likely to report an increase in Bible engagement if a family member in their household or a neighbor died from COVID-19. For those that have not personally known anyone who has died from COVID-19, their level of Bible engagement tended to stay the same. Eight in ten individuals who were hospitalized by COVID-19 said they wished they had used the Bible more. Well, that makes sense. Because whenever we personally face crisis, we're usually more open to thinking about eternal matters and spiritual matters, aren't we? We're more open to prayer and to faith and to Scripture when we're in crisis. That's why after 9-11, you saw the churches filled with people that were coming to pray and to worship and seeking God. Whenever a nation, a church, is confronted with their spiritual condition, whenever you realize that, you know what, we're actually dying here, should we not be more open to what God has to say? The tragedy of this COVID-19 pandemic, unlike 9-11, we can't come and fill up our churches and worship and pray. And we see the results. Americans aren't even reading their Bible. Remember, as the church goes, so goes the nation. The unrepentant children and grandchildren of churchgoers' past today are virtually ignorant of God's Word. Google and look up biblical literacy levels in this country. They are shockingly low. We live in a biblically illiterate culture. And now you've got protesters and rioters in the streets of our city burning stacks of Bibles. We have the ability to change this, church. We can change these statistics because guess what? They're our statistics. When's the last time you opened up your copy of God's Word and sat down prayerfully to read and to listen to what God has to say to you? We call that having a quiet time or having our devotions. Are you a part of that 14% who are reading God's Word? I'm sorry, 8.5% now. Or are you part of that vast majority that's not cracking open your Bibles to read it? When's the last time you invested in personal Bible study? I'm talking pen and paper in hand, your Bible open, maybe a commentary or a Bible dictionary or even a Sunday school quarterly nearby to dig in and try to gain a deeper understanding of God's Word. When's the last time you did that? 
Listen, being a part of a Sunday school small group is an easy and great way to do that. Because it provides you the, 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 the passage to study. It provides you the study materials in your quarterly. And it gives you that accountability of knowing that you're studying this with a group of people that you get to talk about it with. Are you studying God's Word? What about memorizing Scripture? What about meditating on Scripture? Praying God's Word? Sharing God's Word with other people? As I said, the ABS's definition of Bible engagement includes how we allow the Bible to impact our choices on a daily basis. Are you doing what James said? In James chapter 1, are you just merely listening to the Word and so deceiving yourselves? Or are you doing what it says? Are we living by the Word of God? Amos calls us to hear God's Word if we want to live. Are we? Are we listening? What else do we need to do if we want to be resuscitated and live? We must hear God's Word, but secondly, he says we have to seek the Lord. Look at verses 4 through 6. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. For he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. We find this call to seek the Lord about 30 times in the Bible. Amos mentions it twice right here in these two verses. So this must be something urgently important for us if we want to live. Remember, God told Abraham that if he could find just 10 righteous people in that, in that immoral pagan city of Sodom and its sister city Gomorrah, he says, if I can find 10 righteous people, 10 people that are willing to seek after me, I will spare the city. Did he find ten? No. In Jeremiah's day, God said he would have settled for just one. For just one person who was seeking him. Listen to what God told the prophet Jeremiah. He said, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. And guess what? Jeremiah couldn't even find one. In Amos, 15, in Amos chapter 5, verse 15, God says that if they would turn and seek the Lord, God will save a remnant of Joseph. God's not asking for the whole country. He's just looking for a remnant. He's looking for a few. Well, what does it mean to seek the Lord? In Amos chapter 55, it gives us a description. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. What does that mean? What does it mean to seek the Lord and call on the Lord? Well, he tells us, Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. He will have mercy on them and to our God, for He will freely pardon. We have to forsake and change our ways and our thoughts. That's the biblical definition of repentance. To change our ways and our thoughts. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how do our minds experience that renewing transformation? By engaging in God's Word. 
by doing the first thing and listening to what God has to say. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's by the Spirit's rebuking and correcting and teaching and training and equipping us. That's how our minds are renewed. That's how our lives and our behaviors and our motives and our want-tos are transformed from the inside out. Listen, I'll put it this way. The more we learn about Jesus, the closer we grow to Jesus, the sweeter Jesus becomes like honey on our lips, the more bitter and distasteful sin will become in our lives. Amen? The sweeter Jesus is, the more bitter are the things of this world. God changes our tastes. He changes our desires. And we seek Him, not the things of this world. Amos contrasts seeking the Lord, though not with seeking sin, not with seeking the things of this world. He contrasts seeking the Lord with seeking religious experiences. Remember last week, Amos sarcastically called Israel, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin some more. But now Amos has put all irony aside and he warns Israel of the consequences of continuing to play religious games with God. He says, you'll go into exile. Your holy places, Bethel, the house of God, will be reduced to the house of nothing. It'll be a pile of ruins. See, Israel thought that going to church and giving their offerings and singing their songs, observing holy days, they thought that all of these rituals would somehow earn God's blessing for them. And and God says, wrong. Dead wrong. Because your outward religion is not resulting in inward change. There's no power there. There's no transformation because guess what? You're not really seeking after me. You're giving me lip service, but your hearts are far from me. Let's go back to our CPR analogy. It was religion itself that was blocking the airways. Here's another medical analogy. A vaccine, right? We hear a lot about vaccines in the news and the hope for vaccines today. A vaccine gives you just enough of a virus so that you do what? You build up immunity to it, right? They give you just enough so that you become immune to it. Well, for the Israelites in Amos' day, and for many churchgoers today, they've been given just enough religion that they build up an immunity to it. Their hearts are hardened to the Spirit of God. Their ears are stopped up and no longer hear the voice of God. Their eyes have been closed to God's working in their midst. And y'all, this is especially true of where we live, right? The buckle of the Bible belt. People around us, they have heard enough about Jesus. They know just enough about the Bible. They know just enough church language to be dangerous, right? And they think, well, you know, my mama and daddy were Christians. They raised me in church, and I got wet when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, I'm a member of such and such church. My name's on that roll. They've not darkened the doors of the building in decades. And they think that because of that, and because they're good people, and because they say a prayer before they eat their meal, that they're good to go, that they're fine. They've got a relationship with God. 
of God's Word doesn't factor into their lives one bit. They could care less about coming to worship or study God's Word or serve through the local church. They chase after food and drink and clothing, those things that the pagans chase after, but they do not seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. They think that they're going to be blessed because they go to holy places, but they're not going after a holy person. They think because they observe religious rituals, they're okay instead of having a daily relationship with Jesus Christ. Someone once said that a change in geography never changed a heart. Listen, going to church won't change you. Going to Ridgecrest up in North Carolina won't change you. Going to Camp Pinnacle or Tacoa won't change you. Listen, youth going to student life camp at Daytona Beach won't change you. I've been to Israel. I've prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've stood at the empty tomb. I've walked on paved stones that Jesus walked on. And you know what I learned? If you go to Israel to find God and you don't bring Him there with you, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because you're no closer to God in Jerusalem than you are right here in Thompson, Georgia. And as I stood at that western wall and I observed all of these Jews praying and weeping and doing their rituals because they believed that in that place they were closer to God than anywhere else in all the world, my heart broke and I wept because I knew the truth that I came to that wall with Jesus in my heart. And when I leave that wall, guess what? God goes with me. I take Him with me. Because it's not about a place. It's about a person. It's not about rituals. It's about a relationship. Amos warns them that judgment is coming and all their holy places are going to go up in smoke. Seven times in these first two chapters, the Lord warns that He is coming with fire. Our God is a consuming fire and He will either burn you up or He will purify you. It all depends on are you seeking the Lord. Listen to what God says. Seek the Lord and live. And the third and final thing Amos tells us to to seek what is good. Look at verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live, and then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say He is. They said that God was with them, but He wasn't because they were not seeking what is good. They were seeking evil. And so once again, Amos gives us some specific sins that we need to forsake and repent from and deal with one by one. And he begins, let's let's look at verses 8 and 9. In your Bible, if if it's like mine, these are in a parenthesis. And scholars think that what Amos has done, and I've I've put in their notes, I've put these scriptures there, so I I won't tell you them right now, but there are certain verses in Amos that scholars think is a hymn that Amos is quoting from. And he says right here in verse 8 and 9, He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkness day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is His name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. Amos is calling them to consider the God that they're sinning against, the God who is coming to judge them, the God to whom they must return and seek if they want to live. And Amos says, you know, the people around you, these pagans that you mimic, these pagans that you want their approval, they're worshiping Pleiades and Orion. They're worshiping the stars. You serve the God who made the stars. The Lord is His name, and He is coming in judgment upon you. What are the specific sins that they are to repent of? Look at verse 7. The first is 
the sin of promoting injustice. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Israel was guilty of taking the sweet waters of justice and turning them into poisoned pools of bitterness. He tells us in verse 24, we'll look at next week, that famous verse that says that let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Israel was guilty of taking what should have been the sweetest, most normal condition known to man, and that is equality and fairness and justice for all. And they had turned it into the most bitter of experiences imaginable, oppression. Justice is the life-giving river beside which all societies must be planted if they are to thrive and to grow. Poison those waters and they'll sweep over that nation like a flood and leave it lifeless and barren. The pillars of righteousness. Righteousness is like the pillars, the foundations upon which a country is built. Israel had dashed those pillars to the ground. They were content to play at religion while their leaders poison the waters of justice and dash the pillars of righteousness to the ground. The second thing they needed to repent of is rejecting truth. Look at verse 10. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. And then verse 13, Therefore the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Leaders of integrity are always going to listen to the truth. They're always going to be open to rebuke and to suggestions. But leaders with evil intentions will silence opposing voices. They will do away with people who stand in their way. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Listen, we also live in evil times. And all too often the good people are the ones who keep quiet. Guys, today is not the day for that. Today is not the day for God's people to sit quietly by and let our country run headlong into ruin. We must speak the truth in love. We must give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that we have. And we're to give that answer with gentleness and respect. Our country is lost in darkness and we have the light to shine to show them the better way. Isaiah 59, 14 and 15 says, So justice is driven back. And righteousness stands at a distance. Sound familiar? Truth. I love this picture. Truth has stumbled in the street. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. We are to be salt and light. If we're to help push back the darkness of injustice, oppression, immorality, and halt, the cultural decay around us. Church, we can't bury our heads in the sand and ignore the reality on the ground and just hope it all works out. We can't stand at a distance and watch truth stumble in the street. We must come alongside and defend it and proclaim it and live it and explain it in ways that other people will be compelled to want to live it as well. That's our job. We must stop rejecting truth Third, we must stop oppressing the poor. Look at verses 11 and 12. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of injustice in the courts. 
Amos continues once again to champion the cause of the poor and the oppressed. The rich were literally taking food out of the mouth of their poor tenants. And then when the tenants would try to sue them in court, guess what? The rich had already bought off the judge. That's the very definition of systemic oppression. And it's an age-old problem. It was a problem in Israel's day. It's a problem in our day. It was a problem in the early church. I invite you to read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 this afternoon or join us in our Wednesday night Bible study this Wednesday. We're going to look at that passage. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 tells us the very same thing that Amos says. Listen to what he says. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and well. Does that not sound just like Amos? Your wealth is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. What is our attitude towards the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden? And the final thing that we must repent of is the arrogance of self-confidence. Let's look back at verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say He is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. They thought that God was on their side, but you know what? They weren't on God's side. We we often want to talk about God bless America. Well, what about America blessing God? Are we on His side? See, it was just a thin veneer of religious self-righteousness that was laid over a decaying corpse of a nation. Jesus warned us not everyone who says to Him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of His Father in heaven. James tells us in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that pure religion that God finds pleasing to Him is religion that keeps itself unstained from the world. It's religion that controls its tongue, and it's religion that helps the widowed and the orphaned. Are we living in obedience? Are we clinging to and seeking after what is good? Or are we clinging to and seeking after and approving of and cheering on and giving a wink and a nod to what is evil? Because religion without righteousness and justice is worthless and hypocritical and God detests it. You can't serve two masters. You can't cling to God and cling to what is evil. It's like Elijah told Israel on Mount Carmel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Church, will we seek what is good and hate what is evil? Will we help lead that in our nation? As Ben said, will we be that God at the front of the raft, helping to lead our nation down that narrow path? Or are we just going to sit back and say, well, you know what, no matter where it goes, I, at least I know I'm going to heaven. That's true. But how heartless and cruel is it for us to let others perish and go to hell. Last Sunday after the sermon, John Asher Boutwell asked me, he said, uh, he said, Pastor David, did Amos say anything positive? <laughs> he was listening to the sermon. And I said, that's a great question. He doesn't say much that's positive, but right here in verse 15, he gives us a glimmer of hope. 
perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy. We're to hear God's word. Are we listening? We're to seek the Lord. Are we praying? We're to seek what is good. Are we? Are we seeking what is good and shunning what is evil? Church, the questions begin with us. It's easy to point fingers at the world around us. But we've got to start with us. Would you please stand and pray with me? Father, are we listening to what your Spirit has to say to us today? You're calling us, Father. You're calling us either because we are lost in our sins, we are dead in our trespasses, and we have no hope in this world apart from Christ. And either there's somebody here or watching online or listening on the radio that right now they're experiencing the conviction of your spirit. They know that they are lost and destined for hell unless they cry out to you for your grace and your mercy. And I pray they would come today. I pray they would make that decision right now and fall on their knees and cry out to you to forgive them and to save them and to make them new. Father, there may be people here that are already believers, but they know that they've not been seeking you. They know that they are guilty of just kind of playing at religion. They're not opening up your word. They're not listening to your voice. And they find themselves seeking after the things of this world far more than they're seeking after the good things of your kingdom. Father God, this nation is dying. And it needs the church of Jesus Christ to perform spiritual CPR. But Lord, we have got to make sure that our hearts are beating with your heartbeat, that our breaths are being filled up with your spirit. We are feasting on your word. Forgive us, God, and make us more into your image.